0: Team uh, that we sent out to Serbia arrived back safely. I know that for a fact because some of them are here this morning. So if I can invite you guys to come up and uh, give us a debrief about what went on in Serbia. If you could just turn that one off for, for the moment, we'll come to the slide in a bit. So if you can just blank that for us, that's fine. Thank you. Okay, so Phil, Abby, Matt, welcome back. Thank you. Tell us how it went. Please? Uh, well,
1: it started off strangely because we met this bloke at the airport in Belgrade, and we couldn't get rid of it.
0: But,
1: um, no, it's been a brilliant, brilliant week. Excuse me if my mouth is not quite caught up with my brain yet. Adrenaline. Situation normal then. Well, a, a, adrenaline got me a different flight and went somewhere else, and uh, so we've all been getting our words rather mixed up as the week has gone on. But no, it's been uh, it's been a joy. It's been really good.
0: What's the best thing for you, Abby? <laughs> did Did you eat beef burgers the size of your head? Yeah, we absolutely. <laughs> um, I think, like, I really enjoyed the teaching and, like, doing the talks and everything. I really enjoyed that, actually. Good. quite fun. Good. Matt?
1: Yeah, I mean, it was nice to be back with people that I know well uh, Like <laughs> about six months. So that was nice and just, uh, just such a nice team we had. Just a lot of laughs and a lot of fun. Good. Um, but also, yeah, all the kids
0: are so great, and the teaching was fun, and yeah, it was just a great week. Good. Anything we can pray for?
1: Yeah, we've sowed a lot of seeds. Um, I went out there with the the determination to, as far as possible, just lay it on the line mm. and be as direct as I could with the kids. So please pray for them. They. They need the Lord Jesus. Usual thing, you say, who trusts Jesus? Half the room puts their hands up, but mm. you're not sure whether they really get it or not. But another issue, and this struck me more as the week went on. Uh, I know it's been rather warm here this week, mm. but it's been like that for weeks and weeks and weeks over there. They've had no rain. Um, often talk about the land of a million sunflowers over there. The sunflowers are dying. That's their crop. Mm. We had one little boy on the first week. A little boy, first week, in the first three days. Sorry, uh, little boy named Vella, if I remember right. Um, He's seven or eight years old. At Parter, the kids like have a prayer meeting. You know, they, the kids will stand up in a in a room full of people and pray, and it's it's wonderful. But they were asking, "What can we pray for?" And he put his hand up and. And he said that his parents grow vegetables. That's their way of earning their money. That's their income. He said, they've, they've hardly got a crop. Mm. Everything's dying. No, no vegetables, no money. Um, it's pretty desperate over mm. at the minute. So please, pray for rain. Mm. We've got some. They ask us to send some over if we've got some. But.
0: <laughs> Let's give thanks and uh, lift up these things before the Lord for a moment. Father in heaven, thank you for the privilege that we've had as a church to be part of a team that's gone over to serve you in the gospel in Serbia. Thank you for the team that you sent out for Phil and Abby and Evie and Matt and Dave. Thank you for bringing them safely back yesterday. We commend them to you. We pray that they'll get back into the swing of things here and rest and recuperate and we pray for them in Serbia that the seed that is sown will bear much fruit in the lives of the children and adults that they had the privilege of witnessing to and sharing Christ with. We also pray that it might please you, Lord, to grant them rain, so that there will be a fruitful crop uh, of sunflower and, and things that people, and, you know, in that culture, they need rain, Lord, to, get, to grow vegetables, to get money to feed their family. So we do commend all of these things to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. I wonder if you recognise any of those sayings on the screen behind me. You've got to be in it to win it. Um, I used to hear this as an, uh, as from, from the directors at uh, Lockheed Martin when we started a new project. It was a standard line. Failure is not an option. Uh, who said, I did it my way? Good. Um, who said, I'm ever so humble, Mr Copperfield? Uriah Heat. Good. Who said, this is a hard one, this is a test your brain, I have 10 unforgiving seconds to justify my whole existence. Anybody know? Harold Abrams in the 100 meters um, Olympics. He literally said, my whole life, I have 10 unforgiving seconds to justify my whole existence. That's how long it took to run 100 meters or 100 yards then. Who said, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more? The Apostle Paul. Okay, let me ask you some more hard questions. Do you keep a record of your achievements? It used to be a regular thing uh, in, in industry when I had a proper job, was you'd always polish your CV. You'd always be updating your CV. Do you keep a record of your achievements? Let me ask you another question. Do you look for opportunities to drop your successes into the conversation? Ever subtly, of course, but do you drop your successes into the conversation? Let me ask you another question. Do you name drop so that you can bask in the reflected glory of the cool people in front of your peer group? Do you name drop? When you've had failures and setbacks, do you bluff it out? Or do you look for people to feel sorry for you? Or do you look for others to point the finger at? How well or badly do you take criticism? Do you keep a record of the wrongs that are done to you? How is your prayer life? Is it biased towards asking or is it biased towards praising? The sin of pride is alive and well in all of our hearts and it expresses itself in boasting when we achieve our, our goals or it expresses itself in despair and self-pity when we fail to live up to the standards and the expectations we set ourselves or others have set for us. And we are all in the business of wanting to justify ourselves to justify ourselves means to be declared righteous, that's what it literally means. And we're all in the, in the game of justifying ourselves in our own eyes, in the eyes of others, and ultimately we're in, in the eyes of God. Do you, do you believe me? That we're all in the business of trying to justify ourselves. Let me prove it to you. you some of you look like you don't, you know I never try to justify myself. You just did. But... Um, have you ever said, when someone's accused you of something, or someone has pointed out something about you, and you know that they are 100% right in their criticism, or 100% right in their judgment of the, of the thing that's just happened, they're absolutely on the money, they've put their finger on something that you find painful, have you ever said, yeah, but, yes, but, that's a, not, that's a lawyer's argument, You're in the court under the the gaze of their approval or condemnation and they've condemned you and you've gone, yeah, but it wasn't me. You've justified yourself or tried to. We're all in the business of doing it. These are the hearts that we all have. And what the Apostle Paul teaches us here in the passage that Emily read to us gives us all the help we need in confronting And killing the sin of pride. Here's my text for you this morning. It's in Philippians chapter 3 verse 1. Where Paul writes, Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. And it is a safeguard for you. Now it is clear from the context of chapter 3, Paul is dealing with the sin of pride. I'll demonstrate that to you in a moment. And so when he says rejoicing in the Lord is a safeguard for you, what does he mean? How and why and from what is rejoicing in the Lord a safeguard for you? As I said, the the issue that's presenting here is the sin of pride. So I take it that when Paul says rejoice in the Lord, it is a safeguard for you. Rejoicing in the Lord is a safeguard against the tentacles and the poisonous virus of pride. So, what does it mean to rejoice in the Lord? It means that you have discovered for yourself the greatest treasure in the universe and the deepest pleasure in the universe you have discovered is in your intimate and personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Get that from verse 8. Paul says, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. The surpassing worth of Paul is telling us, because I've become a Christian, because the Lord Jesus has saved me and made me his, I've come to know him intimately and personally, and I have discovered that he is the greatest pleasure in the universe and the greatest treasure. He's my pleasure and my treasure. He is the it's surpassing worth of knowing him. That's what it means to rejoice in the Lord. It is to discover and to delight in the reality that every treasure and every pleasure you have ever dreamed of and ever longed for and always strived for is found in Jesus. Knowing you, Jesus. We sang it, did we not? There is no greater thing. Did you mean it? Or was it just one of the songs that we sing? Did you actually mean it? Because that's what rejoicing in the Lord is is. So rejoicing in the Lord, says Paul, is a safeguard against the sin of pride. Now with regard to that, there are only two options. And this is the choice that every one of us has here this morning, with regard to the sin of pride. Either the sin of pride is killing you, or you, by the power of the Spirit, are killing the sin of pride By rejoicing in the Lord. So let me ask the question again. How does rejoicing in the Lord safeguard you from the deadly sin of pride and from all of its poisonous tentacles that wrap themselves around your heart? And the answer that the Apostle Paul gives us, I want to break out into three headings. Rejoicing in the Lord safeguards you from the sin of pride because you discover you have a new identity in Christ. Secondly, the sin of, uh, the rejoicing in the Lord safeguards you from the sin of pride because the Lord gives you a new perspective on your own heart and on his from Christ. And thirdly, rejoicing in the Lord safeguards you from the sin of pride because the Lord gives you a new power to know Christ. A new identity a new perspective, and a new power. Let's ask God to show those to us now. Father, please open our eyes that we may, right here, right now, by the power of your Spirit, behold wondrous things from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. A new identity. Now, what it would seem from the context is Paul is warning the church family, against the powerful and seductive pressure to be in with the in crowd. We all want to be in with the in crowd, don't we? With those in the know. Apparently in the know. And so he pulls no punches in describing them. Look at how he describes them. Verse 2. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. Who is Paul talking about? He's talking about his fellow countrymen who say that getting right with God means you must become a Jew. You must go through the ritual of circumcision to become part of the in crowd. You're not part of the in crowd, say these false teachers, unless you can go through this process. You want to be in with the in crowd, don't you? You want to be on the right track with God, don't you? One of the things that we know that someone has become a genuine believer, is that they want to please God. That's one of the marks of the work of the Spirit of God. New Christians want to please God. Here's the danger. When very impressive people who know Bible and speak Bible offer you such wonderful claims as getting in on the inside track with God, getting in with them is very enticing. But it is a deadly path to follow if they're not teaching you the gospel. Hence, Paul's no-holds-barred language. We all, don't we not, want to be in with whoever is in at the time? We all have people who exert very, very, very strong influences over our lives and over our life's choices. Here's the question I want you to answer, Christian, this morning. When you think about your peer group and your friends... And those who exert an influence over your life, are they drawing you closer to Christ or are they pulling me away from him? Is my relationship with this person drawing me closer to Christ or pulling me away from him? Secondly, are they helping me to discover my identity in him or are they calling me to re-identify and align with them? Which is why Paul follows up this no-nonsense warning, showing us that rejoicing in, boasting in, glorying in, they're the words that are used, boasting in, glorying in, rejoicing in, in Christ Jesus, flows out from your blood-bought, spirit-filled, God-given identity in him. Here's the text which is on the screen behind you, verse 3, 4. It is we who are the circumcision... We who serve God by the, his Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. He says, genuine Christians, we are the circumcision. We are the circumcision. I.e., those who are in a covenant relationship with God. In Genesis 17.1, God introduced the covenant of circumcision to Abraham. And it was a sign... Done by in those days human hands when the children were eight, when the boy's child was eight days old. We'll come to that in a moment. And it was a sign that they were in covenant relationship with God given to Abraham. But let me tell you this the, the New Testament makes it crystal clear that the human hands circumcision in the Old Testament was always, always, always pointing to this work of the Spirit of God. Who does the true circumcision of the heart? You want proof? Romans 2.29, Colossians 2.11. Tell us very clearly that the true circumcision is a work of the Spirit on the human heart. It's another way of saying regeneration, born again of the Spirit of God. So when Paul says, we are the circumcision, he says, we are on the inside track with God. It's a work of the spirit, which is why he goes on to say, we serve God in his spirit. We serve God by his spirit, not in our own strength, not under our own steam. Evidence of that is that we boast, we glory, we rejoice in Christ. In all that he has done and all that he is doing and in all that he now means to you which eclipses everything you used to boast in. Hence, we put no confidence in the flesh. There's no pride. We take no pride in our self-justifying, ego-inflating, self-confidence builders. Do we anymore? Really? <laughs> we, live in a, we live in an identity-obsessed culture. And our culture is telling us that even our children at primary school can re-identify if they want to. We live in an identity-obsessed culture. And here Paul says, the only identity that matters is the one that God gives you. It's a blood-bought, spirit-wrought identity as the true child of God. Are you rejoicing in the identity that Christ Purchased for you on the cross. Rejoicing in the Lord flow, flows out more, most naturally when you realize who you are in Christ. For it is we who are. Is that a source of your joy? Because that will help kill pride. What did you do to earn your new identity? But Nothing. It was a given identity. It was a given righteousness, as we'll come to. You did nothing to make yourself a Christian. It's all in Christ. You don't have to re identify, He's done it for you. But also, Paul talks about a new perspective. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Just listen to Paul at the, as a, at, for a moment as he plays, he wouldn't have put it in these terms, but these are my terms, as he plays the identity politics game. We're all building our little identities, we're all building our little empires, we're all polishing our little CVs. But notice how Paul exposes, by the Spirit, he has a 180 turn of change of heart over his not too shabby CV. Listen as he boasts about his past in terms of coming from the right side of the tracks. It is a very impressive pedigree. Verse 4, end of verse 4. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, right at the right time, of the people of Israel, of God's covenant people. I come from the right side of the tracks, of the tribe of Benjamin. The right tribe from the right people. Son of my right hand, said Jacob, as Rachel breathed her last. A Hebrew of Hebrews. What does that mean? Why does he say Hebrew of Hebrews? Hebrews. Abraham was first called a Hebrew. He was the first one who God designated as a Hebrew. And Paul is saying, you want inside track stuff? Abraham. Abraham. I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. This is my pedigree, says Paul. Don't many people climb the greasy pole, the greasy corporate pole, by having a good pedigree? Went to (laughs) Eton. went to rugby Cambridge Oxford and know the right people <laughs> many people rely on their pedigree and, and, and where they've been and who they know it's, it's not what you know it's who you know that used to be a phrase at work it's not what you know it's who you know that, that's how it works in the corporate world that's how you climb the greasy pole it's not what you know it's who you know Paul says look at what I know look at who I know but also listens. he boasts about his track record, which also has a very set of input performance figures. In regard to the law, the law of God, a Pharisee, the most fastidious, detail-orientated religious cult on the face of the planet. They knew Bible, but even written additional bits to the Bible so that everybody understood where the safeguards were, how to keep the Lord's day. Wouldn't push the button on that lift on the Sabbath. No, we have to get someone else to push it for us so we can get up in the lift. In regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, putting my religion to practice, persecuting the church. As for righteousness, that which God requires of me, based on the law, the one who does these things will live, based on the righteousness that God requires, Faultless. Faultless. Many people succeed by sheer hard work and strive to reach, the top of, but to reach the top by their own blood, sweat and tears. That's why workaholics are so stressed and so insecure most of the time. You're only as good as your last score on the door. That's the corporate world. That's the world in which we live. The pedigree that we've got or the performance that we've got or a mixture of both. And Paul says if anyone thinks they've got confidence to boast in... If someone thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, to boast in the confidence, boast in the flesh, I have more. Listen. But listen as he shows you that something complete, something so radical has happened to him, he has had a complete 180 perspective on his pedigree and his performance. Look at verse 7. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ Jesus. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Listen to him. He says, I consider, I consider, I consider. Three times he uses the phrase, I consider. What does he consider? Whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss. The things that were my treasure... The things that were the thing that mattered to me, were gains to me. Put that on your CV. Mark that one up. Keep the record of of good performance and all the family tree stuff. What were gains to me, I now consider loss. Why? For the sake of Christ. Christ. All my performance, all my pedigree, all my gains, because God has opened my eyes to see them what they really are, they're loss. They're loss. They were actually doing me harm, not good. I thought they were doing me good, but they were actually killing me. I want to see them as loss. I've recalculated them. Another I consider. What is more, I consider everything a loss. Why? For the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whose sake I have lost all things. Not just my performance and my pedigree, but my ties of nature. My family don't want to know me now. My culture has turned, don't want to know me now. And Paul says, I literally have lost all things for Jesus' sake. Becoming a Christian has come at an incredible cost. But it's worth it. It's worth it. Here's the last consider. This is the supreme 180. I consider them garbage. That's the way the new international version translates the word. Let, it, let me teach you a Greek word. It's the word skubalon. It's not a nice word. It's a very horrible word. It's a dirty word. Let me give you an example. Recently, my wife and I bought ourselves a little puppy dog Oh okay. Little Jack Russell two hour cross called Boise. And he's growing. And we have to take him out for walks normally twice a day. It has never and we've also as well as investing in the dog, we've also in, had to invest in these. <laughs> you know what one of them is, don't you? It's a scuba on bag. It is, and, and you'll be surprised how much scuba our dog can generate. <laughs> Luckily, my wife takes charge of that. I have done occasionally, but but she looks after the scuba bags, and she goes around picking up after this dog, after this dog has produced quite an enormous pile of scuba and I'm ever so grateful that the council have put scuba repositories around the park, so you can drop the. Bag of scuba on into the repository, and there you go. You never see it again. This is what Paul is saying about everything he was proud of. I consider them garbage. Everything that I was boasting of, everything that I was seeking to justify myself by. Why? That I may gain. Christ What does this teach us It teaches us that rejoicing in Christ leads us to true repentance to a true 180 degree turning away from all my boasting in record Because you see rejoicing in Christ gives you the perspective to see and hate and be revolted by your sin of course Of course, the bad things, the things you're ashamed of, the things that you wish you'd never done, the words that you've said, the motivation that went into them. You're ashamed of them, of course you are. But it's also to see and to hate and be revolted by your righteousness. By the things that you invested your time and energy and effort, your self-justifying, ego-building goodness, the good things that you used to do. To put them on your CV. He says. Christians say. I now consider them. Dog waste. That I may gain Christ. And be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own. That comes from the law. But that which is through faith in Christ. Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. That's true repentance, by the way. Not just repenting of the bad things you've done, but repenting of the good things you've been trusting in. And only rejoicing in the Lord by the Spirit gives you a perspective on those things. So let me ask you, are you rejoicing in Christ because he has not only given you a new identity but also because he's given you a new perspective on not just your sins and your shame and your failures but also on your goodness, on your achievements because you can now see that these goodness things, these righteousness, self-justifying things are really just toxic feeder streams of your proud heart and but for Jesus' intervention they would destroy you and rejoicing in Christ not only gives you a new identity and a new perspective because he also gives you completely thank you thank you well recovered young man Verse 10, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and the participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Paul has told us in verse 8 that he already knows Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. But Paul knows... That knowing Christ fully and completely will fill not just the rest of his life on earth. But also the whole of eternity in the resurrection from the dead. Which is why he says in verse 10, I want to know Christ. I know Christ. I want to know Christ. And here's the thing. He knows that knowing Christ will mean learning to live a cross-shaped life in participation with Jesus in his sufferings. Look at the logic, the sequence that he maps out here for us. I want to know Christ. Yes. To know the power of his resurrection. And participation in his sufferings. Knowing Christ in this life as a Christian means participating in his sufferings. That's what it means. And Paul knows that the only way he will have the power to participate in Christ's sufferings and suffer with him, suffer alongside him, suffer like him, is in the power of his resurrection. Only Jesus' resurrection power, his death-defeating, Satan-crushing, sin-breaking power in my life, right here, right now, will enable me to participate in Jesus' sufferings. And becoming like him in his death. What does that mean, like him in his death? What was Jesus like in his death? Obedient. Obedient. Chapter 2, verse 8. And he, Jesus, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. By becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And Paul knows that the only way, the only power in the universe that will enable me to willingly become so obedient to death, obedient to God in how I live and how I die, is the power of the risen Christ in me. Nothing else. I can't do this on my own. It's all of him in his power at work in me. And only the power of Jesus' resurrection will get you through the cross... And so attain, like him, to the resurrection from the dead. Talking to someone on Friday about that verse in Colossians where it says that Christ is the firstborn from among the dead. Well, he wasn't the first one raised from the dead because there were people who were raised from the dead beforehand. The difference is, though, everyone who was raised beforehand uh, 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 i.e. Lazarus and others beforehand, died again. Jesus can't die again. (laughs) It's impossible for death to hold him. He cannot die again. And Paul says, I'm going to go through processes in my life which will be like and feel like and look like a crucifixion, and I have to willingly obey God to become like Jesus. And on the other side is the resurrection from the dead when I cannot die. I cannot die. You see, rejoicing in Christ is getting to know Jesus better and better, and it makes you more and more like him in Jesus' God-glorifying sufferings. makes you more and more like him in Jesus' sinner-saving death on the cross. So I ask you, are you rejoicing in Christ? Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord... It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again and it is a safeguard for you because we discover our new identity is in Christ. We are given by Christ a new perspective on our lives to see it as it really is and a new power to know him. Let's ask the Lord to help us rejoice in the Lord. Father, we ask and pray in Jesus name that we would be a church that is marked as one as a church family and as individuals as those who rejoice in you always. We pray in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. I once was lost in darkest night yet thought